Tonight I'd like to talk about what God really wants. And uh, it comes from the passage that Brother Nathaniel just read. I uh, appreciate uh, that reading. I want to go ahead and read uh, the verses 6 through 8 of that passage. And uh, just to give the context here, Micah in these verses is representing the people, the Israelites, because the Israelites have sinned and God is pronouncing his displeasure to them. And so now in verse 6, Micah poses these questions back to God, representing the Israelites and the questions they have to God. And this is what they ask God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? So they ask God, should I come before you with burnt offerings? If I offer a calf, a year old, a nice young calf to you, would that please you? Is that what you want to satisfy uh, you and my sins? They continue asking, verse 7, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? So they say, God, what if I offered thousands of rams, all of the rams that I have, thousands of them, would that satisfy you? What if I even threw in ten thousand rivers of oil? as a sacrifice up to you. Surely that would, that would please you and that would absolve me of my sins. They go on to say, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They say to God, How about this? What if I offered my firstborn child to you? Certainly then, if I sacrificed my firstborn child, that would satisfy you. And that would absolve me of my sins. But verse 8 shows God's response. And Micah answers here, he says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. God's already told you what will satisfy him. God's already told you what he wants. It is not what you said. What God wants is this. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? You see, God had told them what He really wants. What He really wants is their heart. Because they could offer all of these sacrifices of rams and, and rivers of oil, but God doesn't need rams. God doesn't need rivers of oil. He created rams. He created oil. He doesn't need our physical things. What God really wants is our heart. So if we have outward sacrifices, but we don't have our heart towards God, those outward sacrifices are nothing. God really wants our heart. And if we have the right heart, the sacrifices will follow and they'll be done the right way. But here it shows us what God really re requires of man, of mankind, and what God really wants. And it's three things, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. When I read this verse a while back, verse 8 in particular, I immediately put it to my Notes that I have, and I have a sermon idea, notes on my phone. I immediately put it there because I'm a big fan of three-point sermons. And I, I guess uh, it was just the way I was taught we, in, in high school when we wrote essays. We were taught to do an introduction, three main points, and a conclusion. And I try and structure most of my sermons that way. That's just the way I like to do it. So I read this and I thought, okay, that's, that's a perfect outline Three main points right there, what God really requires and what he wants. To do justly, love mercy, 
and walk humbly. So that's what I want to look at. These are my three main points. I want to start out with do justly. What does that mean? What is God saying to us when he wants us to do justly? Well, if you look up the word justly there, it comes from uh, the root word uh, justice. Uh, it's Strong's number H4941 in Strong's Concordance. Uh, you also see words like right and do or what is fair. So justice is, is what is right and what is fair, what is due someone. And so God tells us to do justly. So what does that mean? What does that mean knowing it means justice and what is right and what is due? Well, uh, first thing I want to point out is what it doesn't mean, what doing justly does not mean. Because sometimes we, we, we get this, uh, we, we use the word justice for other reasons. Sometimes we use the word justice as a means of revenge and vengeance. And that's not what God means when he says to us to do justly. But sometimes we use it that way. Romans 12, 17 says, recompense to no man evil for evil. So we know in Romans it says, vengeance is not ours to take out on other people. We're not to return evil for evil. So that's not what God means when he says do justly. But when we think of justice, we think about someone getting what they deserve. And sometimes we use that word in phrases like, oh, sweet justice. They got what was coming to them. And we take satisfaction knowing someone we don't like or someone that did us wrong. They got punished for it and justice was served. That's not the idea that, that God is trying to communicate here in terms of doing justly and upholding what is just and right. When God says do justly, he means we act out in a just and right manner. Not that we seek vengeance on others, and that's not the idea of justice that he has for us. He goes on to say in Proverbs 24, verse 17 and 18, uh, on the concept of, of revenge and justice, he says, Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth. Let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. See, not only is doing justly not seeking revenge, it's not even taking joy or rejoicing in people getting punished. We should not rejoice, even if it's our enemy, if they get punished, there's no joy in that. And we should not take joy in that. That's not the idea of doing justly. But you know, that's, that's difficult. Because sometimes, that's our inclination. If someone we don't like or someone who did us wrong and they get punished, we take satisfaction in that, and that's just kind of natural. Um, as you know, I have a brother, and I grew up with a sibling. Growing up with a sibling, you know, there are times where we do something wrong and we get punished. And I can't tell you how many times that my brother's gotten punished for something, and I took joy in that. I rejoice that he got punished, particularly if he hurt me or did something that offended me or maybe we were both you know, fighting and we hit each other and he hurt me and, and he got punished. I was satisfied. I was glad he got punished. That's the wrong attitude. Uh, you know, sometimes he would get away with things. I would get away with things. And, and if that ever happened, then uh, I wasn't happy because I would say, well, that's not fair. Maybe they didn't see what he did. They saw what I did, and I got punished. And I would say, that's not fair. He did this. Because we want to see someone who hurt us brought down. And it's for selfish reasons, so that we feel better about ourselves. But that's not what justice is. You know, I, I wasn't upholding justice there. I wasn't uh, 
wanting my brother to get punished so that he would learn and so that he would grow as a person and understand consequences. That's not the reason I wanted him to be punished. It was for selfish reasons. So upholding justice is not about revenge and taking joy in other people's punishment. So, um, so I think that's something to understand, that doing justly is not revenge. But in Micah, it does explain what justice is. Micah 3, verses 1 through 2, says, uh, uh, God speaking, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not, should you not embrace justice? You who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. So he's calling out the leaders here and saying, you're not upholding justice. You're acting unjustly. The way you're doing that is by hating what is good and loving what is evil. You see, if you do justice and you do things in a just manner, you're going to uphold truth. You're going to uphold what is right. You're going to seek to do what is right. And you're going to teach others to do what is right as well. And you're going to show that living a right and righteous life, a just life, is the right way to do it. And it is a good life. So embracing justice means we love what is good. And we put away things that are evil. We turn away from that. And we teach others as well about the importance of doing what is good. Micah 6 verses 10 through 12 um, goes on to describe specific examples of how the Israelites were living in an unjust manner. So here's some of the examples that uh, God calls them out for. He says, Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, and the short epha which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights? Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. So here he's calling them out, pointing out specific examples how they were living their life unjustly. He said, you've gotten ill-gotten treasures. You've gotten treasures for yourself in a wrong manner, perhaps exploiting other people, taking their possessions for your own. You have the short epha. Epha is just a unit of volume. Um, so today we could say someone uh, uh, has a gallon, perhaps. Someone is selling a gallon of milk. And so uh, they have this gallon of milk in front of the people they're selling it to. But and they say it's a gallon, but in reality, it's half a gallon. But they sell it as a gallon, and so they're shorting the person. They're cheating them out of what is fair and what is right by selling them less than they said, say it is. Uh, that's what they would do. Same, same idea with dishonest scales and a bag of false weights. Uh, they would measure things on scales. So let's say they had flour on one side and then uh, weights on one side. And they would have these weights, and they... Let's just say they would say, this is one pound, this weighs one pound, this weight, and then they would measure it out. But in reality, it didn't weigh one pound, it was half a pound, so they were selling flour, let's say, for half, selling flour for a pound, but really, in reality, it was half a pound. So it was dishonest scales, bag of false weights, they were cheating people out of what was fair, uh, and then uh, tongue speaking deceitfully. So they were just conducting themselves in an unjust manner. And that's examples of how they were doing it. Uh, I tried to come up with a list of ways that we do that today. Uh, I call this list uh, cheating through life, cheating our way through life. And as we go through this list, I'd, uh, I'd like to you to think about if you could say you've never done any one of these things on this list. Uh, have you ever cheated on a homework assignment in school? 
Have you ever cheated on an exam in school or for something else, maybe for business? Have you ever uh, cheated on something like that? Have you ever plagiarized in school or business or something else? Have you ever lied on your taxes? Have you ever lied on your timesheet for, for work? Have you ever lied to customers or to your boss? Perhaps uh, the reason you're late, you lied about that. Perhaps the reason you're not coming in, you lied about that. and You just didn't, wanted to, you wanted to avoid something, so you're lying to your boss. You ever lied or cheated in business dealings? Have you ever shown favoritism? That's a form of being unjust because you're not being fair with everyone. You're giving someone an unfair advantage uh, because maybe you get something in return. You're not being just in that. And generally, have you, have you ever just lied to avoid punishment, shame, or just to get out of something? These are examples of how we live in an unjust, untrue, dishonest manner. And I'll confess to you, I'm guilty of more than one of these things in my past. And we cheat our way through life at times. And we come up with reasons why we do this. Sometimes we explain them away and, and we say, oh, it's just a homework assignment. It's not important if I just copy someone else and, and cheat on that. Or it's just an exam. It's, it's in uh, uh, English or math or, or something you don't like. You say, I'll never use calculus in real life. So if I cheat on this exam, it, it doesn't matter. No one will find out. It's not important. Or it's just taxes and you know, uh, the government's corrupt and, and they're stealing my money and so they're being unfair to me so, I, you know, I can do what I want here and, and I don't have to be honest with that. And we come up with all these reasons and, and why we explain these things away and we say it doesn't matter. And you know, maybe no one will ever find out. Maybe the teacher will never find out. Maybe the boss will never find out that we lied. Maybe we'll get away with it. Maybe we'll even gain from it in a worldly sense. But God knows. God finds it out because He knows it when you're doing it. It matters to God. Even the smallest things, like a homework assignment or an exam, God knows if we're lying and if we're cheating. And God cares. And we need to care. We need to do our best to live a just and honest and true and right life in everything that we do. Everything that we say. And not explain it away or think we can get away with it. Isaiah 61, verse 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. God here says, I love justice. I love what is just and true and right. And I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I hate when there's someone who cheats. I hate cheating. I hate lying. I hate dishonesty. I hate people who cheat other people. God loves justice. We need to have that same attitude towards doing what is right in everything that we do. Do we love justice? If so, we won't do these things. And we'll live an honest, pure, and right life, uh, doing justly in everything uh, in our life. So that's what I believe God means when he says to do justly in all of our relationships, all of our interactions, to make sure we're following what is right, we're upholding righteousness and good living, true living. We're teaching others the importance of living right. We're doing justly. Second thing that God really wants, that he says that he wants from the Israelites, and I think he wants from all of us today, is to love mercy. What does that mean? What does love mercy mean? Again, back to Strong's, looking at the word mercy, uh, you'll find words uh, as a definition like goodness, 
kindness and loving kindness. Again, with the word mercy, sometimes um, we think of forgiveness, and that's what I think of. When, when I hear the word mercy, I think, oh, someone owed me something, and uh, they had a debt, or they hurt me in some way, and I forgive them, and I show them mercy, and I let them go. Um, and we use it that way. And I think that applies to mercy, but mercy in the Bible, I, I also believe, can mean many other things, and like these words goodness, kindness, and loving kindness. And uh, sometimes in various translations, one translation will say mercy, but another one will say loving kindness, or kindness, or love. Um, so I think it translates to all those things. Ephesians 4, verse 32 uh, I think captures the, the essence of mercy. Uh, here it says, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted or compassionate, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. So here in this verse, Paul writes that we should be kind to one another. So general kindness and goodness, tender-hearted, compassionate, loving one another, forgiving one another, forgiving each other of wrongdoings. And I think all of those concepts kind of fall under the umbrella of loving mercy and, and being a merciful, loving person. So I believe that's what, what that means to love mercy, to live out our life like this. Uh, but if you look at mercy, loving mercy, and you compare it to justice, sometimes it seems like those two concepts uh, uh, may conflict in some way. So I want to I look at that um, real quick. Uh, one thing I want to look at here is that uh, there is a relationship between being merciful and loving and upholding justice, upholding what is right, and uh, upholding uh, truth. Matthew 23, verse 5, here Jesus is, is calling out the Pharisees and says, But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries, enlarge the boards of their garments, and then he continues on for a long list of all the things that they do to be seen of men. You see, the Pharisees, many of the Pharisees and scribes and, and uh, priests in, in the first century were hypocrites, and Jesus calls them out for that over and over. But on the outside, they were doing acts that were just. On the outside, they appeared righteous. They were doing many religious acts. They were even sacrificing to God. But on the inside, their heart was wrong. They weren't doing it out of mercy and love and kindness and compassion. On the inside, they were doing it for their own praise. They were doing it to be seen of men. So that tells me we can do outward things of sacrifice to God, but if it's for the wrong reason, then it's not acceptable to God. And that goes back to what Micah was saying. In the book of Micah, as we read at the beginning, they would say, well, what if I offered 10,000 rivers of oil? That would be a good thing. But if their heart is not in it, that is meaningless to God. So all of our just acts and our righteous living must come from a place of mercy, kindness, and love. That must be the foundation, the motive, and the reason that we act in a just and right manner, that we do justly. So that's how I think those two concepts uh, relate to one another. Mercy, kindness, and love, that's the motive behind our just acts and upholding truth and living in a right manner. Another uh, uh, verse that kind of um, shows the relationship between uh, what we think of as justice and also with mercy, is Matthew 5. Here, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus here says, You have heard that hath been said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. 
And so Jesus here starts out saying, you've heard this saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And when we read that on the surface, we think, okay, that, that's justice. That's someone receiving what's due them. That's the punishment they deserve. That's what justice is. But then Jesus says, I say unto you, resist not evil. Instead, if, if someone smites you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. And then he goes on to say, if someone takes your cloak or your coat, then offer your coat to them or cloak. I forget which one's first, but offer him more than what he took. And so what I think Jesus is saying here is that we should not use the concept of justice as revenge. And sometimes that's what we think of as justice. We think well, they, they're going to get what they deserve. We take pleasure in it. Or we even go out of our way to make sure they get punished. And Jesus says, don't have that attitude. Don't use this phrase wrongfully, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Don't use it as a way of revenge. Instead, when someone hurts you and someone does evil to you, show them love, mercy, and compassion instead. Instead of hitting them back, turn the other cheek. Instead of suing them for, for stealing from us, offer them something else in return. Let them take from you and then say, hey, do you need this as well? Looks like you're in need. Let me give you this as well. I think that's the concept Jesus is teaching here, that we should show people who have hurt us love, compassion, grace, and mercy. That should be our response, not to take vengeance, but to show compassion. And that, uh, you know, I think we could take that too far where we let people take advantage of us and we enable sin. That's, I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching either. I think he's just generally teaching us that typically the best response when someone offends us is to show them love, mercy, and compassion. I tried to think of some examples of how this concept might apply to us on, on a daily basis. Um, I thought of the, you know, the typical example, someone... Uh, does something to you on the, on the road and cuts you off perhaps and we want to respond uh, evil for evil and get back at them in some way. Well, let's say someone does that and instead you apply this concept to that situation and you let them over in front of you. Not only that, you calm down and you even back up a little bit, give them some space, let them go on with their day. How much better situation is that than you responding in a wrong way? Another example, someone... Um, is speaking to you and they're upset and they're just really furious and they're angry, perhaps they're mad at you. Maybe it's on the phone and uh, they're saying bad words to you and calling you names and they're just really upset. Well, we know the, the, the verse that says a, a soft answer turns away wrath. Instead of, of, of getting back at them and, and, and calling them names, we say, I'm sorry, I, I know you're frustrated. I, I'm sorry that you're frustrated. I hear you and I understand. Is there something I can do for you? I'd like to do something for you. Maybe we can pray right now and ask God to help us in this situation. Imagine saying that to that person, how that would diffuse that situation and completely turn that, that conversation around. Uh, one more example I thought of, um, uh, and this is within family relationships, I guess. Um, you know, whether it's between spouses, a husband and wife, or maybe parents and a child. Um, let's say we have certain chores in the house and uh, let's say your parent or your spouse comes to you and, and says, uh, I see the trash has not been taken out and it's been several days and I told you yesterday, take out the trash. Why haven't you taken that out? 
the trash out and they're upset at you and maybe they're more upset than they should be. You know, maybe they've had a bad day and they start really getting angry with you. There's, at that moment, there's many things you can say and there's many different directions you could take that conversation. But if we apply this concept that Jesus has spoken about to that conversation, then perhaps we would say something like this. I hear what you're saying. I understand. I apologize. I have not fulfilled my duty that I said I would. And I, you know what? I'm going to take out the trash right now. I'm going to do it. Not only that, I'm going to do the dishes for you tonight. I'm, I'm going to do your chore tonight. And I, I'm going to take care of that for you. Can you imagine that response? Let's not imagine it. Let's let that be our response. And that will turn that situation completely upside down, where it could have gone uh, the wrong direction. But I think that's the concept here, you know, on a day-to-day small level. That's the concept Jesus is trying to teach, that we shouldn't respond angrily or for revenge. We should instead respond with love and compassion, even willing to give more than what they've taken from us. And if we do that, that's so much more powerful than seeking retribution, than seeking to correct them in some way, Uh, because we're angry, if we show them mercy and compassion, what an impact that will have. What a benefit for both parties. And so I think that's um, one verse that deals with the concepts of of what is just and justice and vengeance and mercy and what our response should be in situations like that. Uh, Another example of of kind of the relationship of of justness and fairness and love Sometimes the pursuit of fairness goes beyond love. Sometimes it goes to a point where it's counterproductive and it's actually hurtful um, to relationships. Uh, Romans 6, verse 6-7 says, But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law with one another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? You know, sometimes we take small disagreements and we turn them into huge arguments because we're not willing to give up our stance. We're not willing to say you were right or we're not willing to cede our point and even be defrauded. Paul here says even if you know you're right, you need to at a point say you can take this, I'll let myself be defrauded, this is not important. This is not worth it. Even if we know we're right on a stance, there's a point where it becomes counterproductive. If it's not something that is a a truth that is fundamental to the gospel and to the church, then we need to let these things go for the sake of love. We don't need to hold on to what we think is right or what we know is right to the point where we're just upset and angry and we're going to, to law with brother. And, and we're crying out justice, and we, we just want to we use that stance. We just want to show what is right. Sometimes that's counterproductive. We need to let it go and let ourselves be defrauded for the sake of love, compassion, and mercy. So I think there's, there's a relationship there where many times compassion and love goes beyond um, uh, what, we want, what we want to uphold as right. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, And above all things... Have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. <clears throat> Above all things, have fervent love. If a, an argument goes beyond um, productivity, 
We just need to let it go, and we need to do that for the sake of love. Above all things, the first thing that we need to do is have fervent love for one another, and love will cover a multitude of sins. Love will forgive. Love will move past sins. Love will move past someone who's upset us. Love will cover all of that, and we can move forward in love. So mercy, compassion, and love, that covers a multitude of sins. Again, Romans 12, 19 and 20, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Again, the concept of vengeance. God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. God's going to take care of vengeance. God's going to take care of true justice. He's going to take care of, of, of wrongdoers and evil people. He'll take care of it. It's not our place to take care of it. God will take care of it. What we need to do, interacting even with our enemy, if they're hungry, we need to feed them. We need to offer the, uh, food to them. If they're thirsty, offer them drink. Show them love, even if they're our enemy. And if we do that, that will have an impact on them. It says, heap coals of fire on his head. I think that's just an analogy to show that will really show them what they need to be doing. That they were wrong in, in, in being uh, wrong towards us. That they need to change. Love and mercy and compassion is so much more powerful than seeking retribution. True spiritual justice belongs to God alone, and he will take care of that. Um, another thing I wanted to bring up about this relationship uh, I think it's important we understand God himself. You know, God is a just God. God is just and right. And we know that sin has consequences. Uh, sin, the consequences of sin is death. And we are all guilty of sin. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if we're all guilty of sin and we know the right consequence of sin is death, how can God be a just God if he doesn't uh, inflict that punishment on us as sinners, if we do not have to face the punishment of sin that we know is just and right, that we deserve, how can God still be a just God if he forgives us of sin? Well, I think the answer is found here. I have a, uh, an animation. Hopefully that will work. There it goes. Um, I think this is the answer. This is how God is both a just God and a merciful God. And the answer is through the cross of Christ, through Jesus. Through Jesus, God is not only just, but he's merciful. Romans 5 verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. You see, when Jesus went to the cross... He took the punishment that we deserved. That punishment that we justly deserved, that's death and, and punishment of sin. God didn't just do away with that punishment. He redirected it and he put it on Christ. He put our sins upon Christ and therefore he is still a just God because he paid the price for those sins. Jesus did. And on Jesus, he was, uh, uh, his justness was shown and his mercy and kindness and love towards the world. So through Jesus, God is both just and merciful. God is a just God, and he is a merciful God. And all of that combines together in the sacrifice 
of Jesus. We sing this song in Christ alone. Part of that song says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. See, on that cross, when Jesus died, God's wrath, the punishment of sin, was satisfied. It was taken care of. And now we can be made just and justified through the blood of the Son of God. That brings me to my, my final point uh, this evening. And, you know, I think if we think about um, the point that was just made, that God is a just God, that we are sinners, and we deserve eternal death because of our sin, and yet God put that sin on his son and showed us love and mercy and forgave us of what we deserve, if we keep that in mind, I think it naturally leads us to this last action of walking humbly. Understanding what we deserve, understanding we deserve eternal spiritual death and God absolved that through Jesus, offering up his son, should lead us naturally to live a humble life and put God first in our life. It should humble us. It should, it's, we should realize how we don't deserve the things that God has blessed us with. It should lead to our humility. Walking humbly, what does that mean? Uh, I have both words here in Strong's. <clears throat> the word walk just means manner of life, the way that we live, the way that we conduct ourselves. And then humbly, uh, you'll see words like modest and lowly. So living a life, living a manner of life, a modest life, a humble life, a lowly life, in which it's not all about me. It's not all about what Jacob wants and, and my way. It's about others, and it's about God. A low and modest, humble life. And that's what I think of when I think of humility. I think about shrinking myself and enlarging God in my life. Minimizing myself and maximizing God. Shrinking my desires, my pride, putting that away, my will, my wants, putting that aside and lifting up the desires of God, making God's will number one in my life. To the point where I would say what Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And that should be my mantra every day of my life. That should be my, my motto and what I say every day. Not my will, God, but yours be done. And that should be our lifestyle. That's humility. Because we're, we're putting aside our will and we're putting God's will first. That should also naturally lead us to ask this question. What do you want, God? What do you want from me? And that's what the people were missing in, in the book of Micah. They thought that they could figure out how to absolve their sins. They wanted to worship God the way they wanted to worship God. They wanted to make sacrifices the way they wanted to. They wanted to offer up sacrifices to God, think that's enough, and then live the rest of their life the way they wanted to live. But that's not humility. That's not submission. Submitting to God says, what do you really want from me? How do you want me to live? Submitting to God says, I'm not going to worship the way I think is right. I'm going to look to you to how you want me to worship you. I'm not going to live the way I think is right or what I think would please you, God. I'm going to ask you, what will please you, God? How do you want me to live? I'm not going to try and twist things in Scripture or twist decisions in my life to make sure they work out the way I want them to. I'm going to give it to God and say, take my life and let it be. Your will be done. Show me what you want. Ask God what he really wants. That's what humility will do, walking humbly with God. 
James 4, verse 6 and verse 10. Uh, some general verses about humility, it says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. God resists the proud. This is important. This is one of the things that God requires, that we put away our pride and we walk humbly with him. And if we are humble, we humble ourselves before him, he will lift us up. Similar verse, 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves to the elder. Yea, all of you be subject to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, in the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. If we make ourselves low now, God will exalt us someday. Uh, Peter also brings in the concept that humility is not just towards God. We should be humble and, and show humility towards each other. We should be uh, in submit ourselves to the elder. We should be subject to one another. All of us should be subject to one another. And that means we put others above ourselves. That I put my wife's needs and desires above my needs and desires. That I put Lily's needs and desires above my needs and desires. That I put your needs and desires above my own wants and desires. That we submit to one another. We humble ourselves, shrink ourselves, and put others above ourselves. And that's submitting to one another loving one another in humility. We need to do that with each other, and ultimately, we need to put God above all. And that's walking humbly. One last question to ask about humility. If I'm living a humble life, is there anything I can boast about? Is there anything I can, I can glorify? Uh, well, the answer in 1 Corinthians uh, says this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 29, No flesh should glory in His presence. There's nothing within ourselves that we should ever boast about. Nothing about our own accomplishments, our wisdom, our, our knowledge, our skills that we should ever boast about and be real proud about and, and, and puff ourselves up about. No flesh should glory in his presence. But there is one thing we can glory in. It says, but of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The only thing we should be praising and glorifying in our life is the Lord. Not ourselves, but the Lord. If we're going to glory, let's make sure we glory in the Lord. That we praise and glorify the one who deserves it. And it's not me. It's not us. In Christ alone, our hope is found. In Him only can we boast and can we glory. Final verse here in, uh, in Micah. Um, this is, these are the last two verses of, of the entire book of Micah. So this kind of brings it all to an end. And it ends on a good note. So it's, it's a good conclusion to the book. This is the conclusion. It says, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. And that's the conclusion of the book of Micah. So the conclusion is, Micah here says, who's a God like you? What an awesome God we serve. Who could even imagine or make up a God as wonderful as the God we have? A God who pardons sins and forgives transgression of his people. What an amazing God that he forgives a rebellious and sinful person like me. You do not stay angry forever. You delight to show mercy. 
God delights in mercy. When we don't, when we seek vengeance, God delights in mercy. What a wonderful God. You will, have, you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot, hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God takes our sins as Christians. He takes them. He throws them on the ground. He tramples them underfoot, crushes them, and then he hurls them all to the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. That's the analogy. God takes our sins, the just punishment that we deserve, throws it away, he put it on Jesus, he's paid the price, and he remembers them no more. What an amazing God we serve. Since we serve such an amazing God, shouldn't we seek what he wants? Shouldn't we ask the question, what do you want, God? What do you really want from me? And he answers that. He wants us to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with him. That's my sermon this evening. Hopefully uh, it uplifted and encouraged you in some way. Uh, if you feel there's something wrong in your life spiritually that you need the prayers of the church for, we can pray for you tonight. Or if you need to be baptized, submit your life to God through Jesus, you can do that tonight. If there's one of either class, please come forward as we stand and sing.